Washington, D.C., this is on the ground. As the one man with a plan, Senator Bernie Sanders drops out of the presidential race, millions more Americans file unemployment claims, while the U.S. proves unable to meet its needs during a pandemic. We haven't invested in health care. We haven't invested in the food chain. We haven't invested in the scientific inquiry, not for profit, but so that you could better life and make the world a better place to live. But is the worst yet to come? Will corporations try to push American workers back into unsafe jobs just to save their profits? We speak to economist Richard Wolf. What they want now, the business leaders of America, and what they're putting maximum pressure on the Trump government to do is to get everybody back to work. But the problem is that it's not safe to work. These stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Senator Bernie Sanders suspended his historic campaign for the U.S. presidency on Wednesday, ceding the nomination to former Vice President Joe Biden, who is far ahead in the number of delegates needed to secure the Democratic nomination, but is plagued by cognitive lapses and a lackluster campaign that does not address issues of the economy, health care, or the environment that are popular with Democratic voters. Sanders said in a live stream that a near-impossible path to victory combined with the need for Congress to address the country's economic and health emergencies, were key factors in his decision to drop out. We are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Please know that I do not make this decision lightly. In fact, it has been a very difficult and painful decision. Over the past few weeks, Jane and I, in consultation with top staff and many of our prominent supporters, have made an honest assessment of the prospects for victory. If I believed that we had a feasible path to the nomination, I would certainly continue the campaign. But it's just not there. I know that there may be some in our movement who disagree with this decision, who would like us to fight on to the last ballot cast at the Democratic Convention. I understand that position. But as I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership, and the work that needs to be done to protect people in this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. But let me say this very emphatically. As you all know, 
We have never been just a campaign. We are a grassroots, multiracial, multi-generational movement which has always believed that real change never comes from the top on down, but always from the bottom on up. We have taken on Wall Street, the insurance companies, the drug companies, the fossil fuel industry, the military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, and the greed of the entire corporate elite. That struggle continues. While this campaign is coming to an end, our movement is not. More on Sanders bowing out later in the show. Meanwhile, progressives in Congress say that once they return from their recess, they will fight for a fourth stimulus bill, which will be needed to address the present emergency with direct cash to millions of Americans and needed medical equipment and protective gear, which are in still shocking and dangerous short supply as the United States has the highest confirmed number of COVID-19 cases in the world. The Congressional Progressive Caucus Center and Social Security Works sponsored a virtual town hall featuring health care workers on Tuesday, April 7th. Chantel James attended and filed this report. During this COVID-19 crisis, the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center is hosting weekly forums that examine the pandemic from a variety of angles. This Tuesday, the live panel presentation focused on the plight of healthcare workers on the front lines of providing care for those suffering from the virus, called Dispatch from the Front Lines. What do frontline healthcare workers need? Representative Andy Levin of Michigan spoke along with healthcare workers who directly serve COVID-19 patients. They highlighted the failure to keep these workers safe from infection with protective gear, as well as the scarcity of resources in hospitals. Dr. Ali Nasrallah, chief resident of Beaumont Hospital, a hospital in Michigan that has been converted to an exclusive COVID-19 facility, gave his eyewitness account of the dire situation faced by healthcare workers at this time. So for me, our hospital, we're a COVID-only center. Uh, we've been dealing with COVID-only patients, which has its pros and its cons. Pros are we can leave the N95 on between patients when we're in a hallway. Uh, we don't have to worry about taking the mask off, touching our face, reinfecting ourselves. Those are some of the pros. The staff at Wayne has, and in Boma and in general, really uplifts you to work, to come in. They motivate you. Uh, and that's, it's all great. There's a camaraderie within it where we feel like we're serving a purpose. But at the same time, we're doing things that you'd never expect to do in medicine, which is reuse a mask, uh, reuse a face shield. These all put you at risk. And then speaking to colleagues, and I have an Instagram page called the family doc underscore, and I've been getting messages from people from hospitals in Southeast Michigan uh, and a little west, and I don't want to name them, but it's very, very upsetting what's going on. Uh, these residents are messaging me terrified. When I tell you terrified, I mean terrified. They're not being given N95 masks when going into COVID rooms, unless they're doing specific procedures. They're told, uh, this is based on the CDC's recommendation, that uh, unless you're doing a procedure where there could be aerosolized particles, then you don't need it. Like intubation, for example, would be permissible. So they're told to use these paper masks. But we're learning uh, every day on the forefront, uh, on the front line, that the management, the, the information we know, it changes. The way we manage patient, it changes. In February, we were told by the CDC that this is a droplet 
Uh, there's no, no worry for contact. Now we know there's droplet and contact. Uh, studies have been coming out this week showing that, you know, it could be aerosolized. It could be an airborne disease as well. Just this week we're here, the people are told to wear masks in public as well. So until, until we know for sure, you know, I, I think we should do our best to protect our healthcare workers, uh, people who are risking their lives. The, the $3 N95 is not worth my life or the next person's life. Hearing about the deaths of the nurses in Southeast Michigan just the other day, uh, a resident lost his life, a uh, th 36 or 37 year old resident who's been going to school his whole life, three kids, you know, probably in a lot of debt. A lot of us are separated from our families. I haven't seen my family in over two weeks. I have a six month old son. You know, I see him through a door sometimes. We're sacrificing and we hope that we're not the only ones sacrificing and our government will fight and sacrifice for us as well. To stay current with upcoming live streams from the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center, visit them on social media. From Northeast DC, this is Chantal James. Now, in addition to frontline health professionals needing protective gear, more and more Americans are in need of food, cleaning supplies, and other household goods. In D.C., mutual aid organizations are springing into action. Lydia Curtis has more. Activists in D.C. anticipated the needs of low-income and elderly citizens and started organizing to distribute food, supplies, and services when COVID-19 reached pandemic levels in the nation's capital. There are hundreds of these networks across the country functioning as micro-cooperatives to deliver aid quickly in a crisis by matching people in need with people who can give or serve. The D.C. Mutual Aid Movement's mission statement says, quote, For centuries, Washingtonians have been preyed upon by corporations, developers, and elected officials who care more about profit than humanity. It is MAM D.C.'s intention to end that abusive relationship through mutual aid meeting the needs of its people, end quote. I knew nothing about these mutual aid networks until the day before the D.C. shutdown when a friend gave me a flyer. I responded indicating that I could deliver groceries and cleaning supplies, and someone immediately texted me back and asked me when I could start. They were coordinating deliveries in Ward 7 and 8 and asked me to report to the Peace House in the Ward 7 neighborhood of Deanwood. On my way there, someone else texted me the names and addresses and phone numbers of everyone on my route in geographical order. At the Peace House, two other volunteers wearing masks and gloves handed me bags and boxes of food for six families, and despite phone and GPS challenges, I completed my assignment. It takes an army of volunteers and good technology to make the network work. I soon discovered that there is a network for every ward, and they are organized into pods. The following week, I signed up for the Ward 1 network, which has at least two pods, and was asked to cover the phones, taking orders from the residents in the 14th Street corridor of Columbia Heights. Coordinators Cynthia Hall and Paul Jones have done an amazing job at getting food and supplies out to the 1,000 residents in their building and to anyone else who needs help. I have the honor of working with them and took a minute to talk to them about the mutual aid response to the COVID crisis in D.C. 
every day we're grateful and, and it's a humbling experience to be able to serve and support the residents of Columbia Heights Village, Ward 1, and, and across the city. We have not turned down any opportunity to help residents uh, across the city and, and from any age, from single mothers who need diapers and pull-ups to our seasoned seniors, as, as we call them, that are up in age. I think our oldest person we've served recently was about 91. We are very grateful, Lydia, to have this opportunity, the impact we've had, the response that we've had, the volunteers who stepped in and worked countless hours is rewarding every day. We um, also have to be mindful. We've, we've had positive cases in Columbia Heights Village, so it's important for us to stay safe and to, to protect ourselves and to be smart about how we serve. Shout outs to the Columbia Heights Tenants Association for winning the fight to purchase their building and for their tremendous work in providing emergency aid to Columbia Heights residents. If you would like to donate to the D.C. Mutual Aid Movement, go to the website at www.themamdc, that's T-H-E-M-A-M-D-C dot com, or call 202-390-8580. If you need assistance, you may call 202 937 7550. This is Lydia Curtis for On the Ground. Finally, in culture and media, Pete Tucker writes in fair.org how the Washington Post, seeing its chance to thwart Sanders' second bid for the presidency, risk voters' health by staying silent about the dangers of in-person voting during March primaries. The D.C. arts community is mourning the passing of David Driscoll, a visual artist, historian, and curator of African-American art, who died April 1st at the age of 88 from coronavirus. In 2001, the University of Maryland established the David C. Driscoll Center, which documents and presents African-American art and holds the Driscoll Archive. He lived in Hyattsville, Maryland, and is survived by his wife, Thelma Grace Driscoll, two daughters, five grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren. And Bobby Mitchell, the NFL Hall of Famer, who was one of the first black players to integrate the Washington football team, died on Sunday at the age of 84 after a long illness. He is survived by his wife, Gwen, a son, Robert Jr., and a daughter, Terry. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us.
On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, there are nearly 12,000 confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the DMV, the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area, and at least 279 deaths. And as reported in other regions of the United States, a disproportionate number of African Americans are succumbing to the disease. With me to discuss the social impact of the COVID-19 crisis in D.C. is April Goggins, a core organizer for Black Lives Matter DC, and the Reverend Graylin Hagler, Senior Minister of Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ and founder of the Faith Strategies Network. Welcome back to On the Ground, April and Reverend Hagler. Thank you. So April, in addition to Black Lives Matter DC, you work with mutual aid in, I think, especially Ward 7 and 8 of DC. So please tell me about the impact that you see on the ground from the work you're doing. It's very clear to me that the things that were already, you know, not working and were disparate, things that impacted folks of color, black folks, brown folks, um, are just literally, this is what it looks like when a crisis hits, and none of those things were ever addressed. There's ways that the, the government and the, the state believes that they're keeping people safe or, you know, flattening the curve that really are just, are just creating brand new obstacles and even risks for folks like frontline workers who we already know have issues getting childcare. And I'm talking about like people they're still calling essential workers. So childcare was always an issue, but now it's even more of an issue. <laughs> and getting tested, just knowing like where to go and do you qualify and folks not knowing necessarily if they're sick or this is how they always feel. Um, and then dying in community and dying at home. And then you just have the education gap, you know, there's to keep talking about that there's these free hotspots, well, hotspots don't, you know, they don't, aren't in people's houses. And that assumes that they have, and these are the kids, assuming that they have ways to access the internet. Um, just a lot of things that were already there, but don't, but now, you know, are actually creating situations that are, that are, that are a little worse. I was talking the other day, there's a group of kids that comes to my house every day. There's four of them, they're siblings. And they uh, are in need of food every day. And it's food that they don't need to make, that they don't have to make to be able to eat. And just understanding, like, what that really looks like on a day-to-day basis. Yes, they can go to the meal sites, but that's once a day and not on the weekends. So for me, I'm seeing some of the things I always saw, but in a way that you're just like, there's not actually a direct way for government to actually do what is needed, um, but it definitely falls on the people, which is where mutual aid comes in, that it's not charity. It's about solidarity and knowing that we only get through these things if we get through them together. And similarly, Reverend Hagler, through your work at the church and through other reach that you do, what is the impact that you see on the ground? Well, you know, it's many different levels. First of all, 
churches have not been able to meet, houses of worship have not been able to meet, which basically has meant that the income has gone to zero, which has meant that most of the staff in those uh, houses of worship either have been laid off, furloughed, hours reduced. So again, it continues to create a kind of pressure because even the houses of worship that were there uh, to engage and work in the community end up really being absent at this point. Um, their doors largely shuttered and basically the staff reduced. Though we're still trying to do stuff virtually, streaming and doing um, all types of meetings online to try to keep people together and keep morale up, there's still kinds of pressure that is on these houses of worship in order to survive. Now, let's be clear, a lot of the businesses that have had to close, uh, many of them are in similar situations and do not necessarily have the reserves upon which to draw upon. And many of the particularly churches, grassroots churches, don't have a lot of reserves to draw upon either. And so the question will become whether many of these will reopen or not, because um, it's, it, is, it is that crucial uh, that is going on. Now, speaking at another level, there's been a number of deaths, number of deaths from the virus, number of deaths from other causes, but the reality is you've got loved ones who cannot even hold services for their loved ones, generally have been separated from their loved ones uh, as their loved ones got sick and passed away. And so you have not had that closure. You know, I've been talking to people who've had husbands die, um, mothers die, so forth and so on, that have been estranged because of uh, the climate that has put people in this quarantine and the fear of the pandemic. What's happening to families right now when, for example, their relative unfortunately passes are they able to have any type of service for the person? Are they able to bury the person? I mean, what, what's happening to families? Generally, uh, people, um, bodies either end up being refrigerated because connections aren't made with the kinds of facilities. Funeral homes are overloaded with the need to continue to store bodies. There have been some funeral services that have taken place with 10 people or less. And if you think about that, you know, most families immediate families are above 10 people, you know, so you've had that hardship where it's been more than 10 people has not taken place. Uh, a lot of times people have just simply said uh, farewell to their loved ones without those ceremonies of closure. So it's those types of things that are going on that's really a hardship for the family, emotional hardship. Okay, I'm sorry. And then you, you were going to talk about the disparity in terms of the black community. Right, and, and just going to relay it, not in a statistical way, but in a real way. For example, get a call from a church member two days ago who is upset because she's getting ready to resign from her job, and she's upset because she has to resign. She feels she has to resign from her job. And I asked her, well, why do you feel you have to resign? Well, she's a tax preparer. The company will not let her work remotely, demanding that she's an essential employee. So she has to go in and meet with folks without any of the protective gear being supplied. And so basically, people are either having to go and work in those conditions or resign. And obviously, when you begin to think of it, the computer work that takes place in terms of tax, tax preparation, uh, it's hard to understand why somebody can't work remotely. But one of the presuppositions that a lot in this culture have is that black folks and people of color will shirk their responsibility if they are allowed to work remotely. And that's a kind of the hatred and prejudice and racism that comes along with that. Uh, so you have people who are basically having to sacrifice employment, even when employment is there, in order to survive, in order to not infect their families or infect themselves. And so you have those kinds of effects going on. And when you think about it, you know, it's sort of like the people 
I deal with and people I talk to are the kinds of folks who've been demanded to come in and clean uh, the medical facilities, uh, uh, those types of things, the housekeepers, uh, people who've been exposed over and over and over again. And then we act surprised when somebody comes down as stricken and it ends in a fatality. The other thing that's come out this week, uh, in addition to the disparity in terms of, of black people uh, succumbing to coronavirus, is the fact that because there has not been the type of proper national testing that went on in like China, South Korea, other places in Asia, we don't really know if we have the virus, you know, and most of us are just stuck at home and you can be asymptomatic and, and have it. And the point has been made this week is that the numbers of dying of those who have died is not even correct because people are dying at home. People are dying at home. And if they haven't been tested, those numbers are, aren't being counted as coronavirus deaths, right? Exactly. Right? And so I'm wondering if you're seeing any of that in your work, uh, Reverend Hagler in April. Yeah. It's like this facade of like trying to get people to pay attention, but not panic them. But I don't know that people understand that, yeah, because we don't have that kind of testing and haven't, like we're six weeks behind where some of those other countries were at this point, to know that it's been here for much longer than we know, which means that, yeah, exactly, more people are, and that's that dying at home is that we don't necessarily know that we're sick. Everybody doesn't know that they have a fever. And everybody doesn't have a primary care physician to call. And then there's the other side, living east of the river, where we only have one hospital um, for 150,000 people, which is like, do I go in for this, knowing that, like, we go to the hospital when something is wrong. We don't have a primary care physician. Um, Do I go? Because all I'm hearing is that people there have the virus. What does that mean for me? And, you know, is it serious enough? Okay. I think you were going to say something, Reverend Hagler. Yeah, I was going to say this is that, you know, for me, um, I have to look, I also look at things theologically and uh, and reflect upon it. And so what's the point in this moment is that we have spent all of uh, this time, this energy, creating tax breaks for wealthy folks, mm. putting money in the military to get the latest weaponry, to get the largest military possible, the latest rocket, the latest aircraft carrier, the latest uh, implement of destructions, uh, also spent money building a, a wall on the southern border. All of those things in order to make people in their paranoia feel secure and safe. And mm. a virus stops them. A virus mm. that can't be bombed and a virus that a wall can't keep out stops them. Mm. That is a statement about our ultimate insecurity, that even as we have gone as a society and tried to create all these kinds of uh, veneer of security, we end up even more insecure. You know, that's sort of, a, for me, a kind of biblical paradigm, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, we engage in foolhardiness, and it demonstrates that we've invested in the wrong things. We've invested yeah. in military strength, we've invested in keeping people out, we haven't invested in healthcare. We haven't invested in the food chain. We haven't invested in the scientific inquiry, not for profit, but so that you could better life and make the world a better place to live. I mean, so we've invested in the wrong place. And, you know, there's a scripture that says, when you sow the wind, you shall reap the whirlwind. 
And here we are reaping this whirlwind, and it's not going to be the only whirlwind we're going to reap unless we change our ways. Wow. Well, it could be that we are only beginning to see what we will reap from this crisis. But I do want to ask you finally about the D.C. jail. You both work around issues of the incarcerated and the D.C. jail, like prisons and jails around the country, is a veritable Petri dish for the virus. Yeah. So the work, I mean, the work has always been there, right? Like as an abolitionist, I've been trying to force or, or push the, the issue of, you know, just abolishing the carceral state. However, now what you have is the reason why, um, so that you have mostly, mostly black, but also folks, folks of color, literally just living, breathing and sleeping in a, a Petri dish. Where now I think yesterday, at least when we started, there was 126 people at the jail who had tested or who are in quarantine or tested. I can't remember right now, but where you go, if you've ever been to DC jail, where, where, how can they actually quarantine? There are several lawsuits that include, um, corrections officers talking about the reality of what's really happening inside. I've been to Hope Village now three times, both times when um, one of our loved ones passed away, um, both times. And um, also watching that staff refuse people bringing them toiletries. Uh, Trey on White was out there. They had water, all food, and hot food, actually. And then being um, not allowed to have that. And then there's Fairview. And so you have Fairview uh, where conditions are the same. And again, you cannot social distance in a cave. You can't do it. So what we're saying by allowing people to remain in jail or in halfway houses, which is just to us jails without, uh, that have doors instead of bars, what you're saying is it's okay. It's okay for them to get a death sentence because of how we've already devalued them in society. I know this week, April, you released uh, a press release that you had four demands of uh, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine. One, decarcerate the D.C. jail and to stop defending the Department of Corrections regarding the conditions inside the jail and to stop blocking defense lawyers subpoenas for video footage inside the jail. And then four to end what you call the the culture of torture at the jail. And uh, you say the current lockdown has the people inside the jail trapped for 23 and a half hours a day. You say conditions inside the jail are so brutal that the union representing the correctional officers who work there are supporting the ACLU's lawsuit against their own employer. Wow. So... There's a lot happening there. Have you received any response from Racine's office? Nope, none, none at all. Well, you both are on the front lines, on the ground, working in our community, and I definitely will be checking with you in the coming weeks, and I hope that we do bend the curve or flatten the curve for the community. I've been speaking with April Goggins, a core organizer for Black Lives Matter DC, and the Reverend Graylin Hagler, a senior minister of Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ and founder of Faith Strategies Network. Thank you both for joining me today. Look forward to it. One afterward note uh, from our segment I did contact the office of Carl Racine, the DC Attorney General Carl Racine. 
about conditions at the D.C. jail, but I did not hear back from his office in time for our broadcast. Tragedies are commonplace All kinds of diseases People are slipping away Economy's down People can't get enough pay As for me is on the ground voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. well an additional 6.6 million americans filed for unemployment claims for the week ending april 4th bringing the total number of claims for the past three weeks to more than 16 million as businesses organizations and social life remain shut down across the united states during the covid 19 crisis joining me to help us understand what these numbers mean on the ground is economist richard wolf host of the show Economic Update. He is also the author of several books, including most recently Understanding Socialism, and he's visiting professor at the New School University in New York City. Of course, we also know that he's professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Thank you, Esther. I'm glad to be here. Well, I should first just get your reaction to this moment that 6.6 million more people filing for unemployment and here in D.C., the Congress is still on recess, while as projected, their $2.2 trillion stimulus plan is not providing the relief people need now. And then to top it off, the one candidate who seemed to offer some prescription in terms of basic income to people and universal health care just dropped out of the presidential race. Quite a week. Well, yeah, let, let me go in reverse order. I found it very depressing to uh, watch Bernie Sanders' speech. He seemed to me to embody uh, the hopes uh, of millions of Americans who voted for him and who supported him with their votes, but also with their enthusiasm, with their contributions of money that made it possible for the first time in American history for a candidate to be a real contender even though he didn't get money from the rich people and the big corporations and, and all the rest. I'm very sorry that he did what he did. I wish he hadn't done it. 
I'm looking for whatever silver lining in that dark cloud of his withdrawal that there might be. And the one I see is that he helped to make it possible to talk critically about our capitalist system, to point to ways it could and should better serve people, to open the whole conversation about whether and how we might do better than capitalism. He's the first one American politician in my lifetime who has dared to say, yeah, I'm a socialist, big deal, it, it's something we ought to be discussing. So I think his greatest success will now show up, namely that he inspired literally millions of Americans to think about politics as something other than the grubby business Republicans and Democrats make of it, that something else really is possible. And, you know, you look at people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, someone who says she was inspired and stimulated by him and, and all he stood for. And so the silver lining I see is that there are lots of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes out there, uh, white and black, male and female, and everybody else, who can step up now and realize that he may not be leading the, uh, the charge, but he's still in there. And as he said, too, it was never about him. It was about what kind of change this country is now grown up enough to maybe undertake. And that's my hope about that. As to the unemployment, let me make it clear to all of your listeners, since I know you, you want the truth here and you don't want it sugar-coated. We are now in a depression, not a downturn, not a recession, not a bad period, not some hard times. We are in a depression. And if your grandmother is still around or your grandpa, and if they can remember what it was like to be a kid in the depression, talk to them. You'll get better advice on what we're in for than anything you read in the mainstream media. We now have millions upon millions of people thrown out of work through no fault of their own, therefore unable to earn income, therefore using up whatever little savings they might have had so that they now have no more, leaning on their family and their friends who probably can't help them because they're in the same boat anyway. It's a desperate situation. An economic system, capitalism, which was unprepared for this virus, didn't have it ready, didn't have the beds available, the hospitals available, the ventilators available, the masks, the gloves, the tests, all of it. Those things we know how to produce. Those things we often do produce. We could have had them produced. We could have had them stockpiled. And they could have been ready, not in the halfway through March, but in January and February, which is when we already knew from China and elsewhere how dangerous all of this was. But corporations who could have made those things, they didn't because it wasn't profitable. They did other things and they didn't stockpile in warehouses so we would have them when we needed them for a population in this country of 325 million people. And they didn't put them in stockpiles in warehouses because that wasn't profitable either. And so the private sector, 
didn't do what it didn't do, endangering the public health, because they have a more important priority, profits. If ever you wanted a criticism of capitalism, here it is. Capitalists do what's profitable. And preparing for this pandemic, this virus, this deadly threat to our public health, they were busy making profits, not preparing for the public health of the people. An economic system that fails on such a scale has no right to claim our loyalty anymore. And let me drive home in case some of your folks aren't clear on this. We know all about viruses. They are part of nature. They have been with the human race for thousands of years. So have dangerous ones. The last big dangerous one was called the Spanish flu in 1918, literally 100 years ago. It killed huge numbers of Americans. It started on a military base in the middle of Kansas, United States. More recently, we've had SARS, MERS, Ebola. We've had, we know all about viruses that can be dangerous. There is no excuse for being unprepared. The private sector was busy making profits, and the government, which thinks its job is to support the private sector, number one, didn't compensate for the private sector's profit-hungry behavior. They were complicit in it. So they didn't produce the masks and the tests, and they didn't store them up either. And now the worst of it. Having failed to protect us from the virus, they are now doubling the burden of all that we're going through in struggling to keep healthy, to keep our children and our families healthy. They're giving us an immense dose of unemployment, no job. No income, no guarantee when this is over that you'll get that job back that you're now unemployed for. Who knows what the employers will do, what advantage they'll take of this situation. Come on, everyone really knows this is a disaster on five different levels. This is a system that for the mass of people doesn't work. Last point. This is the third crash of capitalism in the 20 years that we're into this century. In the spring of 2000, we had something that got called the dot-com crisis. In 2008 and 9, we had another crash, which was nicely called the subprime mortgage crisis. And here we are, 2020, with the third crash, and this is a doozy, like the one in 2008 and 9 was, and this time we're blaming a virus. Let me tell you something. A system that crashes three times in 20 years, throwing millions of people out of work, depriving millions of people of their homes, that's a system that's no good anymore. It can't cope with stock market gyrations, with mortgage problems, and with viruses. None of those problems are new. None of those problems are problems that haven't happened over and over again. The system is dying. And the question for most of us is really, are we going to let it take us down with it? 
it's interesting you talked about the system not deserving our loyalty, but at this very moment, that's what is being asked by the establishment politicians. I guess one of the things that frustrates people who supported Bernie Sanders is the fact that this would seem to be the most opportune time that his policies would be most acceptable or most attractive to people that he is dropping out. But I wanted to to ask you about something else. While we're going through this tremendous period of unemployment, people filing more and more claims, the stock market is going up. And I remember, it's just a faint memory, but I remember remarking during the 2008 crisis, the market did seem to go up as unemployment claims went up. And I thought that, well, you know, they, they seem to like unemployment. Is that what's happening now or is there something else? I think there's something else going on this time, although you're quite right. The pattern you see is the pattern that is in fact there. Usually what that means is that the stock market gets a sense that if unemployment is rising, it kind of tilts the, the playing field in favor of the employer. The more people are out of work, the more the employer can turn to any given worker, whether he's hired or not, or she's hired or not, and say, look, you need to take a pay cut, or you need to take a cut in your benefits, or you need to whatever. And the unspoken backstory to what that remark means is, look, you and I both know there's lots of people out there with no job who'd give a lot to have your job. So you let me take away some of your goodies Uh, Because if you don't, I'll fire you, and boy, will I have no trouble getting someone else uh, in your place. And workers know that, employers know that, and it means that companies are in a position by, by squeezing their employees to make more profits. And the minute more profits are in the story, the stock market goes up. But let me tell you what it is this time. And this is very, very dangerous and immediately affects everybody listening to this show. What they want now, the business leaders of America, and what they're putting maximum pressure on the Trump government to do is to get everybody back to work. When people are unemployed, if you're not working, your boss isn't making any profits. There's an economics lesson that everybody's learning again, which is you can have a wonderful machine, you can have a wonderful factory, you can have a spectacular office with all the latest computers, but if you don't have human beings to work them, those things are worthless. What makes an economy is not the equipment, not what we call capital, it's what we call labor. It is the people who make those machines, work those raw materials into the goods and services we depend on. Without the labor, there's no production. And without production, there are no profits. The companies are losing profits like there's no tomorrow. And that's because the workers aren't there. So they want the workers to be sent back. But the problem is that it's not safe to work. The employers, before this virus hit, but unfortunately also since it hit, they haven't spent their money to make the workplaces safe. You have to test everybody. 
to be able to separate those who are ill from those who aren't, or at least not yet. You have to have all the equipment to test and the personnel to test. They didn't do that. They didn't spend their money to get it done. They didn't buy the masks you need or the gloves you need. And they didn't make the rooms for sick people to have some rest. They didn't do it. They just want you to come back, even though everyone knows that it's extremely dangerous to come back. The American working class, everyone listening to this program, if you're unemployed now, or if you know or care for someone who is, that person in the next week or two is going to be put under enormous pressure to make an un godly decision. Am I so desperate for money? Am I so desperate for income that I am going to not only risk my own life by going back into an environment that is not yet safe, but if you get infected and you don't know it, which is what usually happens, and then you go back at the end of the day into the home with your wife, your husband, your children, your, your elderly, you're going to infect them. So now the system is saying to you, we're capitalists, we're employers, we want you back on the job. And we're not going to give you enough on unemployment to, to enable you to live without it. We're putting you in an incredible squeeze. So come on, come in here, make us some profit, risk your life. I think millions of Americans will probably do it, and I really feel terrible about it. My hope is that there will be millions who say, no, we're not going back into the workplace until you, the employers, have used the money only you have to make this place safe. You cannot, and we will not permit you, to risk our lives for your profits. Well, you know, maybe some of that is starting now with the people who are actually still in workplaces like Amazon, who right. people who They're are walking, yeah, yes. people who are walking out of their job sites and the demanding protective equipment. I keep hearing a, every day a new story today reading about EMT workers. There hasn't been a lot said about them, but they are on the front lines just as much as nurses and doctors, maybe even more so. They're delivering patients to emergency rooms, to nurses and doctors that are protected, but they don't have protection. They just have on their regular uniform. And apparently, you know, some of them have become sick and and they're fighting for their lives. Some of them have, have died. You know, it's also, here's another economics lesson in all of this, Esther. Who are the people we really need in this society? It isn't a corporate executive. It aren't the people up at the top of the corporations, the people making the big bucks. EMT workers don't make a lot of money, but we need them because life and death hangs in the balance. Same thing with the checkout person at the grocery store who's risking everything by being, you know, a foot and a half from you uh, when you pay your bill for the groceries you bought and so on. We're learning that the people to whom we don't give the respect, because in a capitalist system they aren't paid well, well now when the crunch comes, those are the ones we need the most and we rely on the most. And by not treating them properly and not equipping them properly, we risk their lives and our own. Again, this is a system 
that breaks down. The job of the economy is to support the society. And if it can't do it, we got to get another economy that will do a better job. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but I, I do know that, you know, looking forward in the coming weeks, we'll be watching the movement of labor. You know, the people who are trying to organize themselves in places like Amazon, unions trying to organize workers, because just as this is a pivotal moment for capital, it's also a pivotal moment for labor. And yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Right. The big decisions. They're going to face unions, but they're also going to face workers who don't have a union. The same demand is going to be made on both of them. And the real question, the $64 trillion question, how will Americans react? How will the working people, the majority of Americans, react to a system that has served them so poorly and now wants them to risk their lives yet again? It's going to be quite another two weeks that we're about to enter. Right. And I think about so many of these workers supported Bernie Sanders. So in a may, in one way, we come full circle in our conversation. Yeah. So I've been speaking with economist Richard Wolf. He's host of the show Economic Update. He's also author of several books, including most recently Understanding Socialism. Thank you for joining me, Rick. Thank you, Esther. I appreciate your program and I appreciate your invitation. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. Our page on Facebook has the picket sign with big green lettering that says On the Ground. You can also support us on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your encouragement. The music we played this hour included Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder, Thank You Lord by Walter Hawkins and the Love Center Choir, the Love Alive 4 album featuring soloist Yvette Flunder, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care. And keep raising your voice. Peace.
call you, sweet time. I'll give it right back to you. What is this? Thing? 